this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, Jordan Van Trump here with Farm Tank. I'm on here today with Jake Jornstad, who is uh, one of the probably the best tech entrepreneurs I'd say we've had on the show to date. He's uh, all about being focused on bringing innovative software products to agriculture uh, value chain. He started his career out with a computer engineering degree from North Dakota State University. During his time at the university, it looks like he had many other ventures going on, such as working in uh, aerospace, and I think he had a few other companies going as well, one of them being uh, Myriad Devices. Soon after graduation, Jake uh, became the CTO at Virtual Farm Manager. Now Jake is the co-founder and CEO at Bushel. In addition to Bushel, Jake is also the co-founder of a new company started Emerging Prairie. And with that, I'd like to welcome Jake to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And that introduction sounds like I haven't had a focus, but uh, the fun part <laughs> is some, some of those names are the same company just evolving over the years. A lot of, a lot of what we've been focused on has been the same uh, in the last five. So cool. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was checking it out, and I was like, hell, I don't know if this guy's got four or five companies going on or what the deal is, so... <laughs> um, pretty focused sure. on one these days with bushel yeah i hear you so i guess let's just start off with just a brief bit of background from you uh where you grew up high school college first real job i guess first business yeah, so you started i grew up about as far north in north dakota as you can get uh, about 10 miles from the canadian border in rolla north dakota um I, I was kind of considered a, a city kid to my relatives because they were all on the farms on both sides of my mom and dad's family. I had a big cattle ranch uh, down the road at my mom's side and my dad's side, uh, a lot of bankers from that side, but also a small small farm. Uh, some of the land is the original land our family settled however many generations ago, four or five, from Norway. So it's a pretty, pretty fun story there, just being from agriculture roots and Went to North Dakota State University, uh, go Bison, uh, as a uh, computer engineer. And while I did great in high school for grades, uh, college was a different story. Uh, started to co- started working on software, the original roots of our company, and when I was in college, and uh, and my grades just kind of continued to to dwindle at that point. But we we uh, built a company instead. I did get my computer engineering degree. Uh, walked without knowing if I had uh, uh, even past my last semester, but ended up getting an A and two D's, which is good enough for me. <laughs> I hear you. So, you. so you grew up on a farm? You still got, you guys still got that farm? Or? Uh, both, both grandparents had farms, and mostly my cousins are running the farms today. Cool. Are you I was mostly around the farm. I, I've been up to help do calving, been on, dr- drove combine, drove trucks, but it wasn't a full-time thing for me ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, did you do you work on the farm growing up, like in high school, or? Uh, nope, not not in the traditional sort of farm kid way. I mean, I was out on the farm throughout the years, but uh, most of my time was 
school, and I, I worked at Dairy Queen in town and, and uh, mowed a lot of lawns growing up. There you go. Yep, I mowed lawns growing up, too. That's that's what I did. And hell, I started another. I, I actually started, I partnered up with one of my fraternity brothers down at school, and we actually built a pretty big business down there, and he's doing really well. He's getting into, like, excavation and whatnot now, but. That's fun to um, hear. Awesome. Yep, yep, but. Yeah, that uh, that kind of took off for us, but that's kind of my first real business, I guess. But um, let's talk. I wanted to learn. About, so did, I wanted to learn a little bit about this aerospace stuff you did. Um, I don't. I don't really know the first thing about it. I mean, was it just something you did for fun in college, or? Well, I got lucky. So what's what's funny is like all these years later, being in agriculture technology, it was it was kind of all related. So. I was I was just an, in, an intern uh, at North Dakota State helping that summer on a program that was testing uh, the equipment for something called the International Space Station Agriculture Camera, Isaac, they called it. And it was this camera that was going to sit in the window of the space station and take, um, you know, relatively new at the time, high resolution, uh, various spectrums of photography from the from the space station for agriculture use. And, you know, this was in the early early days where cameras were still being put up in the satellites and such, but uh, we got to test them at North Dakota State, and it was planned to go on a Russian rocket at one point. And I don't exactly know the final details, but the, but the camera never made it to the space station. And I don't know if it was because of the, the funding or if, if the rockets weren't available or what, but this... This thing never made it to the space station. Is that did they have more agriculture people involved in that, or more people on the tech side? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, you know, NDSU being involved was a pretty good indicator that they knew what they're doing on the agriculture side. But UND was the driver of the program, if I remember right. So we had collaboration between University of North Dakota and NDSU, obviously both knowing agriculture pretty well. Uh, but it was it was really a technical challenge, I think, more than it was uh, an industry issue. Uh huh. Do you still mess with any of that stuff now, or just kind of a one-time uh, thing? <laughs> I, I would say I never became much of an expert in any of it. But uh, you know, you're talking if you're in agriculture, you you talk you talk satellite imagery plenty of times, and you get to know how the industry works today, and everything from planets work to uh, your friends who are building these different tools out in the space. Um, but that's probably the extent of it. I'm just not an expert in that anymore. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's let's talk about these. Uh, so, all, all these companies I listed off listed off before are those all the same companies or? Well, Myriad Devices became Myriad Mobile became Bushels, kind of the brand. Uh, the brand kept switching. It's kind of in the end the same corporate company. We. We didn't have a focus when we first started our software business when I was in finishing up college with my co-founder, Ryan. Uh, Ryan Ragus and I were building this business together. Um, and about 2015, uh, we, we said, I think we need to focus in. We had about 40 people on our team, and we need to pick an industry and not just try to be good at You know, it's impossible to be experts at everything, um, especially when it came to, you know, looking at agriculture, insurance, banking, all these other opportunities we were kind of thinking about. And agriculture was kind of the no-brainer. When we actually sat back and looked at our business and the kind of the companies we were working with and the stuff that we knew, I mean, Ryan grew up on the farm. His parents still farm today. I mean, we're like, we, we knew this 
different than maybe our competition, which was from the coast. I mean, when you're building software and mobile technology in the early days, uh, your best competition was in California or New York, and none of them knew agriculture like we knew it. And so that was how we kind of landed in the agriculture space, I would say. So who'd you, what, what'd you, who'd you start off making software for? Just anybody and everybody? Yeah, that was how you do it. You, whoever's willing to pay the bill to work on the next thing. So we were hustling. Our first, our first customer we ever had uh, wrote us a check for $500 to build a mobile app for their business. It was in the entertainment space. And uh, as we evolved, we got work with North Dakota State and the extension office there working in agriculture work. We did Eventually, we did work with the big uh, sugar bee co-op here in North Dakota, Minnesota. And that kind of took us off down this path that became the Bushel Platform. Was working with those first co-ops that we had we had done business with early on. Oh, I had no idea. So I guess yeah. You, so you, how big was your team when you decided to focus well, we were, in on agriculture? Yeah, we had about 40 people, maybe 50 at the time, and we had a small team, like three or four people, that were starting to take these this work that we were doing with co-ops uh, to make it work in the grain industry, which we felt like was a big opportunity at the time and really couldn't have fathomed the opportunity that was ahead at first. And we had a three-person team working on what became the Bushel platform, uh, these mobile tools and the ability for farmers to sign contracts and see their, con- you know, their tickets and settlements and do the whole thing. That was the earliest, earliest days there in 2016, 2017 when we first started working on that. Mm-hmm. I guess I, didn't, yeah, I, didn't, I had no idea if that's how it kind of came about, but what did that shift look like? within the company. I mean, hell, you had quite a few people working for you, and it seems like a lot of startups these days do get their hands into a lot of stuff and don't focus just on one thing. They're just trying to make money any way possible, and I mean, I think it's hard. It is. I, I see it happening, but it is hard. I do it myself sometimes even, too, just focusing in on one thing and just going for it. What, what did that shift look like within the company? Well, you know, when you've got 40 people and only three are working on this idea, it was hard to make it the main priority. But as we we built up that, we had our first, I think, maybe 10 customers that had signed up to the Bushel tools at the time that we were building. That that became a tipping point because we knew that if we could get 10, we, pro- we probably could get 100 customers. And so we went out and raised a little bit of uh, investment funding and – uh, with about $1.5 million that we raised towards the idea. And mostly the local, we call them the Fargo Egg Mafia. You know, a lot of players in this industry uh, are from the Fargo area that have done some great things. And so we raised some money from that group. And uh, uh, we put it, we kind of started that real focus. So once, once we, in 2017, when we launched the product and, and then eventually branded the company to Bushel, that was kind of a nail in the coffin to say, hey, this is the direction we're going. We're not, we're not planning to uh, be distracted anymore with, you know, work outside of this space. And so uh, thankfully we've made that focus because uh, our opinion right now is that uh, one of the hardest things to do as an entrepreneur and as a, as a company and a startup is to stay focused. And I think um, as long as the idea is good enough, uh, focus makes all the difference, and that's what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. I hear you there. I wanted to talk to you a little bit too on um I've been talking with a lot of guys lately on just building a successful team around you and I think moving forward um a lot of people are going to struggle with it more just with the work from home and Zoom and yeah 
all that yeah. stuff, people are pretty comfortable with it. But, I mean, how how did you get started? I mean, I guess you started with uh, your co-founder. I think I, I forgot his name you said, but yeah, was Ryan, it just you two Ryan, that started it out? Uh, long story short, I would say yes. There was a couple, three early partners in the business before it was Bushel um, that we had at friends of our or friends of friends coming out of college that were working with us but eventually it was just Ryan and I in the business uh, working on it full time so that that became the, the the obvious path the two of him made a great partnership and I'd say if I ever started another company again I wouldn't do it without a co-founder I think for us co- the co-founder sort of piece here where Ryan's very much a logistician and I'm more of a, a, a emotions guy dri- driving uh, the business that way uh, we make a great team, um, and today we have almost 200 people who I think believe in the same thing that we believe in and building a company together, so uh, it's working for us so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so starting out, it was just you two guys, and then when did, I guess, when did you decide that you're like, hell, we need to start bringing more people on, and what kind of tasks were you taking off your plate, and what opportunities were that was that giving you to help the business grow? I mean, uh, this is this is the crazy stories that happened in the early days. But we we you know when we first started building software together, me and Ryan were both Ryan and I were both kind of incompetent in that area. I was getting a computer engineering degree, but I I had a high school brother who was better at building software than I was. So we we proceeded down this early path of knowing that we weren't the only people that were going to make this work. And so in the even in the earliest days, we had going in, eventually our first full-time hires. Uh, it was pretty early on. Within the first year, we had uh, you know part-time people helping us out because we just weren't capable of doing some of the work that needed to be done. So we, we took that lesson early that, hey, we're going to be good at what we're good at, and if we're not, we're going to find the best people for it. And that's been our mentality, I think, from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what what's the uh, – I mean, it seems like you're pretty successful in ag – Ag tech space right now, and you guys are making some stuff happen. What what would be the best piece of knowledge you could pass along to someone working in the uh, space now for some early stage startups trying to get some stuff going? Would it be building around great, team or? I I'd say it's a great question. So first off, the only reason we could even raise any money early on to invest in a product that wasn't didn't generate revenue to start uh, was because of the team. So. First off and foremost, you got to have something worth investing in, and, and, and there's a dime a dozen ideas, right? Everybody's got the next way to use satellite imagery to do this or that, an egg, or the next mobile app, or the next tool. That, that's the easy part in some respects. Building the team is, is more difficult, and I think early on I'd say make sure you've got the capabilities. If you're out trying to build a company and you don't have – a co-founder that's got skills you don't have or the ability to deliver on engineering efforts if you're building a software technology company, you've got to prove that you've got the ability to find those people because nobody's going to invest in you if they don't believe you can build the right team. So that was that's the first piece of advice. The other piece of advice is don't look at just companies that are raising a lot of money. Just because you raise a lot of money does not indicate success. And that goes for Bushel, too. Just because we've raised, you know, right now this puts us about $75 million in funding so far. And that doesn't mean anything. How much money we raise has nothing to do necessarily with the correlation of value that we're creating. Um, it's just what investors believe you're worth. And 
there's a lot of companies that have raised a lot of money in this space, and I don't know that all of them are going to work out. And so the advantage uh, to an early entrepreneur in this space would be don't look at the, don't look at the money raise dollars and cents. Focus on what is the real problem you're trying to solve. If you understand the problem well enough and it's worth solving and it's not just another pretty pictures company looking at maps, you've got something to start on. And the next question you've got to ask early on is, is this idea that I think is a real problem worth solving, is it big enough to matter? Because if it's not a super big problem, don't go raise money or, or capital against it. Just build it as a, as, a small, as a small business idea. And if it's big enough, if the opportunity is big enough to make a dent, uh, then, then you can think about getting real capital behind it, uh, maybe venture capital and that kind of thing. So that's a couple of thoughts that I'd share. Mm-hmm. Bank, or saying on like the raising money topic, I guess I was going to ask you, I mean, how focused are you guys on raising money? Are you guys very focused on getting new funding or well, are you, we, are you, are you more focused our, on? Go ahead. Well, we finished our round of funding, uh, this latest round, our Series C we call it. It just means the kind of the third tranche of major funding that we did. Uh, we raised $47 million, and we finished that in uh, uh, April this year. So we're, we're, you know, my opinion is we're done for a very long time raising money, and the focus is on continuing to build the business. We, uh, unlike maybe some others in the space, we don't, we don't burn that much cash. Uh, we have a real business. We've got real revenues. All of our customers paid to use the platform, and so that capital is really for growth. Uh, we don't need to invent uh, necessarily new new ideas or pivot the business to get to the next stage. And so I'd say right now we're heads down executing. That's our answer today. Mm-hmm. So when was your guys' first race? Like you started the company, then when, when did you decide to have like your first official race? Yeah, we did our first sort of early stage raise. And in late 2016, we went out and started thinking about how to do that. And we put together $1.5 million in funding in 2017, the very first part of 17. In 18, we raised, uh, the middle of the year, we raised $7 million after uh, walking away from a potential acquisition. And then uh, we raised almost $20 million at the end of 2019 and, uh, and then raised $47 million, uh, just here in 2021 in, uh, in April. Mm-hmm. So what did you do with that first round of funding? Or like, I guess, what did you do with it and then what, why did you decide that you needed it? Because it sounds like you had a pretty big staff before you had it. Well, we did in the sense of we had a, we had resources and team. We didn't have the funding or the profitability. Like we weren't printing cash to the point where we could just fund a brand new product like this. And so we said, in order for this to really be successful, it needs some proper um, I don't know some proper resources earlier. And so a million and a half was went a long ways back in the early days for us. And so that's how we got the initial platform off the ground. And uh, the, the next round of funding was really to finish out the kind of full product build of the first phase of thinking that we had, $7 million. We used that to, to deploy and grow the team. At that point, we were probably approaching 80 people on the team. And uh, when we raised the $20 million, we were approaching our first 100 employees on the team at that time. And today we're just over 200, just about 200 people right now. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I wanted to I want to jump into a little bit of stuff just kind of about your personal, but I guess one one other question before 
Um, what What's the biggest mistake you've made along your business owner journey, and how would you have done it differently if you had to do it again? It's a that's a great question. I think so. First off, generally speaking, I'd say I don't think we regret any of the mistakes or the path that we've made so far. It's uh, we learn a ton in the early days. Continue to learn a lot today on how to build teams. If I could change one thing or 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 make a, an impact, what I would probably just say one, honestly, one pitfall. One pitfall, I guess you would tell someone else to look out for. I guess. Yeah, I think for me, the easy answer is don't avoid focus. Focus as early as possible and earlier than you think you need to focus, and the opportunity will be much bigger sooner. I would say we could have started our focus in agriculture two years earlier and would have made even a bigger impact already. I think we delayed making that decision to, like, simplify the business down to just a particular focus, and I would, I would say if we would have done that earlier, it would have made a much bigger difference. A lot of entrepreneurs are scared to focus because they're not sure the opportunity is big enough. And so they keep doing other things that are distracting from that thing they probably should focus on. And I'd say don't make that mistake and try your best to, to pin down what you're going after super early and just focus, focus, focus. Mm-hmm. You think, do you think they lack focus because they're afraid to fail or? Well, every entrepreneur is a little afraid to fail, but you've got to be willing to fail to be a successful entrepreneur. And I'd say the next part of that would be um, uh, the, the the focus is scary because you you don't know if it's enough business opportunity. And if you you know you obviously if you add up five or ten things, it's probably a bigger opportunity than just one. But the ability to execute on only one thing is typically what makes an entrepreneur successful is when they make that focus. And then the opportunity becomes massive because you take such a, a big chunk out of the pie. Yeah, I hear you there. Let's, uh, I guess let's shift some focus. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about you and learn a little bit about what you do, I guess, outside of uh, work and doing startups and whatnot. Um, moving aside from your career, I guess what do you do for fun? Do you collect any tractors? I saw you're part of a uh, drag racing team. Yeah, so I'd say I'm more of a car guy than I'm anything else. Uh, you can only really afford to have one hobby if you like cars, in my opinion. And particularly, <laughs> I like racing, uh, not drag racing. I actually do circuit racing, so uh, wheel-to-wheel, you know, not dirt track, but circuit. So, you know, left and right-hand turns, asphalt, 100-mile-an-hour cars, and uh, we go race with this group called Grid Life around the country. So we race a lot in the Midwest, a lot of the tracks, Road America, Mid-Ohio, uh, Topeka, uh, at the, uh, the track out there in Kansas. Uh, we, we have a good time. We've got a team of four of us that drive and a broader team of friends that help make it come together. So that's, that's my only, uh, I would say, expensive hobby and probably the only one I can afford. <laughs> mm-hmm. So are you one of the drivers? I am. I drive a totally gutted, full roll cage, Hoosier slick racing Honda S2000. So we have four or six-cylinder motors in our cars. They rev to the heavens like 9,000 RPMs, and we go rip them around the racetrack as fast as they can go. They they turn like they're on rails, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys, uh, you guys build those yourself? or? I'd say you generally, yeah. 
No, we have. We can't afford to just outsource all that. We've got some friends that help build our cars together. Uh, there's a really good guy down in uh, Iowa that we work with to get the chassis set up really well. And so, yeah, we do. We we, we uh, make that happen through some friends mostly. Mm-hmm. So what's the what's like the professional level look like for that? Are you guys on that, or are you guys uh, on? We're 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 basically a level or two below professional, where you'd get paid. So there's something called IMSA racing, uh, IMSA, where they race, or you could do Porsche Cup. Uh, if you've seen that, if you watch TV, you watch those GT cars, the touring cars. That's what we race, mm-hmm. but just not at a professional level. So ours is you could call it probably semi-pro or amateur. Uh, it's more semi-pro probably. Some of the drivers we ri- drive with uh, are ex-professionals, and some of them are amateurs, and we kind of mix it all up. Cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know where I saw that app, but I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he does that or what that's all about. Um, yeah. I think I saw another thing that you're uh, you trying to write a book. I don't know about that. I've thought about writing a book, uh, maybe not anytime soon, but it's, I would call that book Flurning, F-L, Flurning, uh, because you've got to fail to learn in this industry and in, in, in technology. And so I've just got you know tons of small and big failures along the way to, to, to being successful, I think, to some extent, and I'd call that Flurning. So that's the book I think you're thinking of that I've I've shared some Maybe, ideas yeah. on, but I, I saw it out on like one of your social medias or something. I guess what, what's the biggest you know, what's the biggest flur that you've had? Oh man! Well, at one point, Ryan and I, my co-founder, we had we we were like tallying up all the mistakes we've made uh, along the early years and and by dollar amount. And once it hit the five million mark in mistakes of dollars we we could have gained or we lost or whatever it was. That total value broke five million. It was like we stopped counting, and that was in 2017. So, um, I can't imagine how many mistakes we've made along the way. But the, the idea of learning is, as long as you, as long as you learn from the failures, it's not really a failure. It's an iteration of the process. And so, learning is this concept of, of hopefully failing fast enough, where you can learn from it and, and stay alive and keep going towards whatever your goal might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people, it's, it's, uh, they fail at something, and I've even seen myself do it in the past. But they fail at something, and they learn nothing from it. <laughs> I don't know. I on should. My end, I guess maybe that's just <laughs> being stupid and being a pinball, I guess, in some sorts. But I see a lot of people. I guess with my friends, is they just fail, and that's that, and they're done. <laughs> no, that's yeah, right. That's uh, that's kind of the hard failure. That's a tough one. Uh, I should say some of my friends that know me, I do have an agriculture-related uh, hobby, which is beekeeping. I just started uh, learning how to be a beekeeper over the last couple of years, like literally backyard, front yard beekeeping, like in my outside of my house in, your suit? Uh, in, in, in Fargo. So yeah, in the, in the city, within the city limits, you can do it. And so North Dakota is the number one honey producer in the country. We have a ton of honeybees that help pollinate our crops and then we ship them around the country to florida and to california in the summer, in the winter months and uh i'm learning how to just do kind of a hobbyist version of beekeeping so it's been kind of fun you got those you got one of those big suits that those guys wear those white ones they just i do your, your goal is to only use that suit uh if you're in a situation and most of the time i don't wear any gloves 
and you put just a little hat over your your face with the net so that you don't. The key is like most of the honeybees, people misperceive what a honeybee is versus uh, a wasp or something that you've probably been bit or stung by before. Honeybees are pretty gentle, and if you just if you're just careful, they don't really care to attack you. So you don't need all the protection that you kind of think of when you think about bees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably just those crazy videos people post online of them. That's, that seems like that's all. Yeah, you that, see doesn't, that doesn't help. The, that doesn't help the perception. But you're right. Thank God no. we have honeybees though in this country, or we wouldn't be able to grow a lot of the products that we do. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, that stuff's crazy on what they carry and whatnot. Um, it's around incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, tell I I saw you on your page. It seems like you're pretty. Uh, involved with your family and you guys are pretty close tell us a little bit about them yeah so i uh, my wife mary beth and i have been married for uh eight eight going on nine years uh we uh we're both 31 so we're both the same age and we have a son amos he is turning five this summer amos uh loves uh to play soccer which is a sport i never did growing up which is interesting uh he likes the honeybees and he likes cars and so uh, uh, we enjoy time with him and uh, uh, spend time together. My wife uh, actually works at the business. She's on the finance team, works under my CFO on the accounting side. And uh, we uh, managed to make that work. It's, a, it's kind of interesting working with your family, but uh, as long as the team's big enough and you're not directly reporting to each other, I think we've been able to make it work well. So, mm-hmm. how's, how's that aspect? I mean, I've worked, I work with my mom and, my dad and my sister helps from time to time, but I think she's going to branch off and do her own thing. She get she goes a little nuts working with us, but yeah. Well, you guys, you guys got the family name business, so it's an interesting one. I think um, for us, so funny story. In the early days, my wife at the time, early like uh, my new wife, really uh, at the time we had just gotten married, uh, she was working in the business, um, really helping us do a lot of things around. Uh, the office, accounting, administrating, HR work, just kind of helping make things happen in the first 15 or 20 employees. And uh, the problem was we worked in the same room almost, I think, most of the time. And I was technically her boss directly because we didn't have much for um, people on the team at the time. And so that was when it didn't work. Uh, And so she (laughs) went off and built a career in in the banking world and accounting and – and we kept growing the business. And so today when the team said, you know, a couple of years ago, the team said, hey, we think we want to hire your wife. She's pretty talented. A couple of guys had worked with her at another job. Uh, I couldn't do anything to stop it. And they convinced her to come back. So it was about a four-year uh, hiatus from the business before she came back. But she's super helpful on the team. So, Cool, cool. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we're, we all work pretty close. And it gets I imagine, yeah, you don't have time, a so. – you don't have a lot of layers, probably, so it's an interesting. No. it's probably a different perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how a lot of farms work too, though. So, yeah, pretty totally. close knit. But um, I want to learn about uh one more thing, and we'll talk a little bit about bushel and what you guys got going on now. But uh, it seems like it's a common thread, I guess, between a lot of our people we have on the show. But it seems like you're pretty involved in the city of Fargo, and I guess just tell us a little bit about uh. Emergent Prairie and what it's all about, and some of the other. Yeah, I thought you were so part of some other organizations in town. Yeah, so first off, I love the city of Fargo. Um, super proud to be here. Uh, 
got to build my business here, and there's a ton of great talent in the city. Uh, Fargo's pretty known for, you know, North Dakota's known for agriculture. Fargo's known for agriculture manufacturing and electronics. John Deere's got a heavy presence here by uh, some historical purchases they've done with companies. We've got the history of what's called Great Plains Software, which sold to Microsoft for just north of a billion dollars back in the heyday of the first round of technology uh, boom. So there's a ton of fun history here. And uh, Emerging Prairie is a nonprofit that a few friends of mine and myself all started together to support entrepreneurs like ourselves that were, you know, when I started the business in Fargo, there wasn't any gatherings or groups of entrepreneurs that could come together and share stories. And that's when we started uh, with this group, Emerging Prairie. And today they run uh, a bunch of great events. They run TEDx uh, in Fargo. Uh, they run retreats for entrepreneurs and founders to work together and learn from each other. And then uh, they launched the new initiative this last year uh, called the Grand Farm, which is the, the, about almost 100 acres of land right outside of Fargo that is focused on helping support agriculture technologists and innovations on the farm. So it's a pretty fun environment to be in. I'm on the board today, uh, not involved in the day-to-day, -day, but enjoy being a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How's the, how, how did that get started, I guess? Was that just uh, meetings you were holding weekly and just kind of went from there? Or yeah, was there we, like an actual you know, business plan around? Did you go into it with like a business plan on what it is today? I think our first idea was pretty terrible. It was we needed to build a better news reporting site for entrepreneurs in our region. That didn't really ever take off. We got a whole two articles written, and that was the end of that. Uh, but but the gatherings of the entrepreneurs, were, which uh, was what became pretty powerful, and uh, we we decided pretty early on to be a nonprofit model. Uh, we didn't think there was a traditional business right away that would make any sense, and so we went about that path. Today, it generates a ton of revenue in addition to raising money uh, from as a nonprofit to support entrepreneurs. Um, and so, yeah, we've just evolved. It was really. It's like a community. Think about it like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur in a city, you know, what's the community that you go to to try to get to know others that are doing some of the things that you're doing and, the, and all the challenges that come with being an entrepreneur? That's what Emerging Prairie became. Mm -hmm. So I guess how did you guys get people involved and to be a part of it? I, I, there's some smaller groups here in, like, Kansas City, but nothing that doesn't seem like at that scale. And doesn't, I mean, in the bigger cities, you see them at that scale, but something like Fargo for sure. I think that's kind of a tricky region, I guess, getting people involved in something like that. Yeah. So I guess how did you? It all has to do with people, right? I mean, the guy that leads it, Greg Tavine, uh, he's kind of like the connector in the Midwest. He knows everybody's built a great network, and I think he's just focused on the problems at hand. How do we help entrepreneurs get connected and find resources and be successful? Uh, we've helped assemble programs for raising money for entrepreneurs and uh, they, they launched uh, the Emerging Digital Academy, which is a, a platform to uh, uh, go and do a code school. So if you want to change careers and learn technology and software, uh, you can join the uh, EDA, we call it. So they've just kind of solved problems along the way, and it's, uh, they, they did this gathering um, every week on Wednesdays where entrepreneurs would pitch what they're working on one or two a week. And everybody would come and just listen in and ask questions and see how they could be helpful. And that platform has really grown, and that's a big part of the kind of the community building that we've done. So it's been fun to see that. I think really sharing stories was pretty important. In the Midwest, 
we're pretty bad about bragging. You know, we don't brag a lot in the Midwest about what we're doing. And uh, sometimes, sometimes that's not good because, you know, what are the stories that somebody can be inspired by if you don't have any stories uh, mm-hmm. to go build your own? So that's, that was probably a big part of what's made this uh, a community that people want to be a part of. Yeah, or even with those communities, I've been a part of some, and just like the conversation we're having now, it's just not really the stories themselves, but what you can learn from those people and help uh, yeah. incorporate into your business and help save you millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> one idea or one one idea that's like, hey, stay away from that. That's that's that gets a little crazy. Exactly. That's how we that's how we've been been trying to make it work. So. That's a bit about emerging mm-hmm. prairie. Yes, sir. Let's uh, I guess yeah. Let's just jump into a little bit about what you're in this thing off. What you're doing now with Bushel. Uh, I guess we've talked about it on the podcast, but what exactly is it? What, what do you guys do? Like, I, I mean, yeah, I know so, what you do, but let's explain it to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So Bushel uh, started off as a, I would call it a point solution in software, helping uh, grain companies digitize that process of grain delivery. So think about when you roll into a facility to drop grain off, you've got a scale ticket, you're trying to keep track of your contract, eventually your settlements and any deductions that are going on. That, you know, really before Bushel, a lot of that was paper-based. And you're keeping track, you know the story, keeping track of tickets and stuff flying out the truck on the way home. You're trying to help dad record everything and uh, know what your qualities are. And the first job of Bushel when we started, the focus was how do we fix that problem and make that a digital experience? And, and not just a digital experience where you got to go on your laptop. We started day one with this has got to be on the phone because that's where the farmer is every day. The farmer doesn't have time to sit down for two hours and organize on the laptop every day, but they do have time in between breaks. And, and uh, when they're sitting in the truck, they can pull up their phone and understand the operation, and that's what Bushel was here to do at first. So we help farmers see everything, tickets, contracts, bids, futures. Uh, today they can do electronic signatures, grain offers through the platform. And the company, the customer of ours is the grain company, the co-op, or the mill, ethanol plant, agronomy group, and they can send push notifications to their growers that comes as their brand in the marketplace. There's not a Bushel app. There's a whole bunch of white-labeled platforms out there that all of our customers use. Uh, and so, yeah, today we reach uh, about 60,000 farmers are using our tool across the U.S. and Canada, and uh, they process about 10 billion bushels with a B worth of grain on our platform. So we're making progress and capturing market share and trying to make an impact for the farmer. Farmer gets to use it for free, of course. Mm-hmm. So, so is your guys' platform, would you say your guys' platform is bigger or I guess the white white label so are you guys making these apps for these co-ops? So like yeah, you, so it's all you design it all. Yeah, they, yep. So they all they're all kind of based on the same technology, and then we just uh, we make sure they're customized to their brand and their tools, and we have to integrate with all these different ERP business systems out in the space. So, but in the end, it's one single platform if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, yeah. So no one actually goes to the bushel platform they're going to the the co-op or whoever you designed yep. for their platform exactly. and using them but you guys did it all cool so yeah that's, that's really cool. who's so who's uh one question i had is is there any competitors are you do you have any competitors or do you know of any in the space or are you guys kind of uh, yeah 
I think I think early on everybody expected DTN to be a competitor. We don't compete a lot. DTN uh, does do a lot in the you know cash grain, cash bids, uh, futures, that kind of business. Uh, but I think more and more our our competitors are maybe players like uh, some of the ERP systems that um, have built some of their own tools like Bushel. Uh, we've seen uh, companies like uh, BarCharts.com uh, out of Chicago have a tool with their AgriCharts platform um, and some others, but Bushel was kind of first mover, so we've had the opportunity to be ahead of the game a bit and continue to invest and grow uh, where maybe others have come a little late to the game. So that's, that's kind of been the experience we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're seeing, I think, I'm, at least on my end, I'm seeing more of the, I guess, the computer engineering side of things coming into the space. I guess people with a, somewhat of an ag background that went off to do things in uh, computer sciences that are now coming back yeah. to develop that kind of stuff. But um, we're, we're, so certainly the, we're certainly the biggest team in this space in terms of technologists on the team. We've got 100 and some software engineers building these kind of tools and there's not a lot of players that are helping the grain company with that kind of people so yeah so what are your thoughts moving forward with uh, I guess the platform is this all going digital similar to like what's happened with uh, cryptos and currencies and Venmo and Square and stuff like that it's, it's, it's a funny point you bring it up so we do try to avoid the crypto discussion uh, and, and blockchain it's not something that we think is necessarily a solution that's required to be successful but we so we, we've got a couple of big things we're working on there's a product launching here at the National Grain and Feed Association that helps grain companies that are buying from the farmer and selling to a processor or selling down the line in a supply chain move data if you think about it today you know a, a load of grain you get loaded out in the truck and it drives down the road and maybe that same load of grain gets loaded to another truck and drives down to the processor or to the next part of the supply chain, that data that's tied to that grain is actually currently moving slower than the actual physical grain is. And it's incredible that technology and data would be behind this far. And so what we're trying to do is make that paperwork process, that data movement, uh, much simpler for the grain companies and their partners uh, help them be successful and create some efficiencies and reduce costs in the supply chain. That's a big part of what we're working on right now. And the last thing that we're working on, I'm really excited about, we were almost a year and a half into building out this platform we call Bushel Wallet, where farmers can uh, get paid electronically by their grain companies without having to go and get that paper check in the mail. And we think that's, that's needed in the space at this time and farmers should be able to control their money flow better, and the grain companies should, should be able to pay farmers in an easier method. You know, we're still paying, paying people with paper checks and moving it with gas, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you can pay electronically. So think about that as the PayPal Venmo of agriculture. That's what we're working on next. Cool. Cool, for sure. Yeah, that, that'd really help out. Um, I guess staying on the forefront of moving forward, where, where do you see, like, the ag supply chain? and the changes that are going to happen to it in the next five to ten years? Well, there's a lot of talk about that C word. We, we try to avoid it if we can help it at Bushel as well, carbon. Uh, we're trying to take a holistic approach. Uh, we, we call it a sustainability uh, sort of uh, 
a focus and not particularly banking on carbon being the saving grace of everybody. I don't think that's a, a smart move to just bank on carbon being the main driver. It's going to probably be relevant, but uh, our view is this. There was a lot of uh, gold diggers going out west in the gold mining days when we were on the gold rush out west. And some of them found gold, but a lot of them didn't. But there was also those players that were along the highway, along the road, selling supplies and helping make sure that the, those initiatives were possible, successful, and scalable. And uh, I think Bushel was more uh, along the highway helping make these programs, sustainability, carbon, traceability work. We're here to make that more possible and more scalable but not necessarily to run the programs themselves. You will not see Bushel out in the marketplace trying to buy carbon anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that this, this carbon trend, sustainability trend, do you think it's here to stay moving forward or just a trend right now? I think the sustainability aspect of it is here to stay, whether that's uh, based around carbon or water usage or uh, methods of growth, uh, growing our products. I think it's going to be here to stay, but it's going to be a bit more complex than just this idea of, hey, how much carbon did you, did you sequester this year and the next? I don't see that mm -hmm. being the only the only thing or maybe even the most valuable thing. I think there's a lot more opportunity ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Do you have do you have much background on the carbon stuff? Or? I do. I've dug in real no, deep no. with it. I spent a lot of time on it with some people, and I'd say it's real, but it's not nearly... Honestly, I mean, when you're getting 5 or $10 an acre uh, for carbon, but you could do some different, different practices or different changes in your business in the farm and, and you're, or just better marketing and you move the needle 20 or 30 or $50 an acre, it's pretty hard to care about that $10 difference, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. I agree. And, you know, what squirrels me up is they're paying the people – or maybe I'm wrong on this, but aren't they paying the people on improving their land? Like, and it seems like the guys who already already practice a lot of this, these methods, and have really good land, and or the regenerative agriculture push going on right now, they they aren't really getting the benefit. It's like people yeah. have piss poor practices, and isn't that how it's working? A hundred percent. I mean, at least. Some of these programs are based around uh, the simplest way is to explain it is that are you doing practices today that could be improved that we could monitor and track over the next three years to sequester more carbon than you've been? But if you're a farmer that's been doing no-till uh, and low fertilizer practices for 10 years, those programs don't apply. And it's almost like in some cases, if you're really smart, maybe you'll start tilling for a couple years so you can make that change later on and capture some value, but that that's not the goal, and that's not the initiative that we're trying to accomplish here. So uh, they're not all like that. Not all programs are based around practice changes, but to get credit for something you've been doing for three, five, or ten years, uh, it's pretty unlikely right now, and that's that's a mm -hmm. that's a challenge point for sure. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, that I guess it's kind of the wild west right now in ag. It seems like and yeah, hot topic, but no one really. I guess knows what the hell is going on or how to – some people are taking advantage well, of it. Some people what, are lost. What I'd know is that I would not be signing any 10-year agreements to sell my carbon to anybody right now. 
That is not what mm-hmm. I would not make big long-term commitments early. I'd, I'd wait and see what programs are going to make sense. Who's going to be around for 10 years long enough to even pay me. Uh, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff needs to be considered. Exactly. I, I yeah. agree. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about is what, what's like the biggest uh, obstacle you guys are seeing right now in the, uh, in the company? Is it just um, coming up with new software or gaining market share and getting new clients? Or we, We've probably got too many ideas, which is okay, but we've got to be good at saying no to the ones we don't need to focus on. One of the biggest challenges, you know, we're getting in, into some really tricky stuff, like our, our offer management system for grain merchandisers called uh, Bushel Trade is a complex tool that is real-time, that ties into your futures clearing merchant, lets the farmer initiate a grain offer. Uh, the merchandiser is making, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollar decisions on a single click in our tool. Getting that right is so fundamentally important to us that we got to make sure we deliver. And so mm-hmm. the technology ideas are great we have, I think. Uh, the problems we're solving are real. And we just got to make sure we nail it, and our customers are the best people to help us do that, giving us the feedback and making sure that it's the right tool for the right reason. Um, that's probably our biggest challenge ahead. It's just what I what I would define as execution and focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as most people <laughs> comes down to execution. And then when you get into when you get into wallet, the bushel wallet tool. I mean, same deal. We're going to be settling massive amounts of grain dollars for our customers, and we don't want to screw that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One little thing. That's that's some serious cash on this side of things anyways in this business. Yeah, totally. It gets a little crazy. But um yeah, before we wrap things up, I've got one more question for you. I'd just love for you to uh tell our listeners one piece of advice or life life lesson that's had the most impact on you. Well, I would say if you're if you're building something yourself or even if you're you're, you're taking over the family business one of the things that I was told early on that I think has been a big impact to me is uh, having a mentor along the way and maybe more than one mentor or a different mentor as you get farther along. I have a chairman today. His name's Marty. Uh, he says, work hard, play hard. And he's one of the best coaches I've ever uh, worked with. He helps me understand the people and the process of building the business. And both of those things are super important. And, uh, he always likes to say this uh, this thing when we come up to some conundrum that we can't figure out about why something's going a certain way. It says, people are interesting. And so uh, find yourself a coach that can help you not just in the business but also navigating relationships and people. And uh, I think that would be, that'd be something that I do at any stage in, in my life and hopefully I keep doing that in the future. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I think a lot of people fail to understand uh even when running a business, it's not just all about business. It's it's about uh, the relationships you have at home, the relationships you have with yourself, and a lot of other things play into it than just getting clients and knowing about business, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And honestly, in agriculture, if you mix, mix that with technology, relationships are more important than ever. So that's how we think about mm-hmm. the business. Yep, I hear you. Well... I uh, I appreciate you doing this with me today and hope our listeners learned a lot. And um, Hell, I'm sure we'll talk in the future. Well, I appreciate it, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. And 
hope you guys continue to do well, and uh, let's hope for a great uh, second half of the year here for the egg markets.